Man, it has been a great morning so far. This has been a lot of fun to be together with you guys. That singing was some of the best I've heard in a while. Thank you for sharing your voices. We've been talking about what we do when we get together and why we do it. Um, last Sunday, we had the privilege of celebrating with Ridge Mitchell his baptism. And it was neat to watch the video of him sharing truth about salvation and about baptism. And next Sunday, as I already mentioned, we're going to see three more people be baptized. So fitting why we baptize right in the middle here seems to make sense. It's as good a day as any. The aim of our preaching in this series is specifically to explain and remind us why we do the things we do when we get together. Okay, so we've already looked at why we get together, why we gather at all. We've looked at why we preach. We've looked at why we pray. Today we're talking about why we baptize. Next week, Caleb's going to talk about why we give. Then we're going to talk about why we sing, why we take the Lord's Supper, and why we go, why we go on mission. Um, and then we'll wrap it all up with one more together series, one more together sermon. Um, baptism and the Lord's Supper are just a little different, though. They're ordinances given to us by Jesus himself. We'll look at the Lord's Supper on August 18th. There's a lot to be said about ba- baptism, though, both from Scripture from church history. So my intent today is not to just school you in everything baptism, um, but to try and look at God's word. What does God's word say about baptism? That should be our litmus test of whether we're practicing it properly. And if we're not practicing it properly, how to do it right. If it's not found in the Bible, we shouldn't do it. If it is in the Bible and we're not practicing it properly, who's the, who's the one that needs to change? Not the Word of God. It stands on its own and will forever. We are the ones that need to adjust to what the Word of God says. We have to be the ones to change. Every doctrine, every belief, every practice should come out of Scripture. And so that's what we're talking about this morning with baptism. Now, if you go over to the sanctuary... And you go to the baptistry and you put your hand in. There's still water in there right now. So if we go over there and I put my hand in the water and you're walking by and I, and I splash it on you, did I baptize you? When I was a teenager, we did these things at our, at our church called Friday Night Live. Well, one time we were playing hide and go seek in the dark. You guys ever done that? You can't see in the dark. So... We're playing hide-and-seek. I especially can't see in the dark. So we're, we're playing hide-and-seek in the dark, and kids are running around, and all of a sudden we hear a, a big splash. One of the kids had jumped into the baptistry to hide, not understanding it was full of water. Did, did that kid just get baptized? Okay, um, so let's just say that I have a a good friend and I really think they need to be baptized. And so like we're down at the creek and I go over and I tack, like I grab them and I tackle them and I take them and I I throw them in the water. Like I suplex them in the water. Did I just baptize them? Now I'm I'm really not trying to make light of this simply because from, from the moment that baptism was a thing all the way up until current day, 
There's, there's Christians, there's churches that are not only persecuted for being baptized or baptism, but they, they lose their lives. Some people lose their lives for the act of being baptized. So I don't mean to make light of it, but I do want to make the point that those things don't necessarily illustrate baptism because the water's not sacred. Right? I mean, next Sunday, we're going to go into the Mississippi River and baptize some people. If there was any ever water that was not sacred, it's the Mississippi River. <laughs> right? So it's not, it's not about the water. And here's another thing, just to make a point of. It's possible that the act of baptism itself can really just be empty and without any meaning or real purpose. Imagine... If you've got kids, you, you see this played out regularly. Imagine your child who has hurt a sibling and they're going, you say, you need to apologize for that. So they go and apologize to their sibling and it sounds like, I'm sorry for doing this. Do you forgive me? It, it does not sound real heartfelt, does it? There's no meaning behind that kind of a thing. Uh, it's the same way of just a lifeless repetition of prayers, Jesus said, don't do that. Don't pray like that. That has no purpose. So there has to be something more than just getting wet and just saying words. It has to be done according to Scripture. We don't want the kind of baptism that confuses people. We don't want the kind of baptism that misleads people. So as we're starting off on this topic today, I just want us to all agree, and I think we would, that we want to build the foundation for how and why we baptize people firmly on the foundation of Scripture. Not on tradition, not on personal preference, not on ease, comfort, but on what the Bible says. And one of, one of the biggest debates in the Christian community about baptism, really it's two questions. So these are the first two things. When should we baptize someone? Like at what age? And then also, how should we baptize them? These questions have been discussed and talked about for thousands of years. We're not going to definitively answer them this morning. However, I do think that we can look at enough scripture that informs our practice of baptism and our purpose of baptism. When should we baptize someone and how should we do it? When should we baptize? At what age? Should we baptize babies? Should we baptize little kids? Should we baptize teenagers, adults, older adults? Is there a cutoff of when we should or shouldn't? Second question, how should we baptize them? What mode should be used? Should we sprinkle? Should we pour? Should we dunk, immerse? Does the mode even matter? Are these, does it even, is it even a big deal? I hope this morning that we can answer and I can give some clarity to these questions as succinctly and time-sensitively as I can. But from the start, too, I just want to point out and, and make clear that there are, I believe, very godly people across the, the, the plane of this discussion. My hope is not to point fingers or disparage any other faith group, faith community, any, any other religion and in thereby doing turn a blind eye to our own faults. I want to clarify specifically as Baptists, 
why do we, why do we baptize people the way that we do? If you weren't already aware, baptism, the issue of baptism is a big part of why we have the name that we have as, as Baptists. So the first big question, when should we baptize someone? I'm just going to say that I think that's the wrong question. I think that leads us down paths of error and challenges and interpretation and just a way that we really don't need to go. I think a better question should be, who should we baptize? Not when should we baptize someone, but who should we baptize? So usually the simplest answer is best, right? So the simplest way that we can just give you the answer to that question, I believe from Scripture, is we should baptize believers. So there's nothing special about the water that we use, right? We could fill it up with Dasani water, just open a bunch of water bottles. Or what's that kind that? Fiji water, very fancy, flown over, I'm sure, right from the island. Um, We could just dump a bunch of bottles in there, and it's no different than baptizing someone in the Mississippi River. So the, the water's not important So it would do random people who have no belief in Jesus no good to baptize them. If if the water doesn't matter and they don't care, they're just getting wet. People do that in their baths and showers every day. That's not baptism. Okay? This is why we refer to it as believer's baptism. Okay, well, that's great. Who's a believer? Well, let's, let's start with what Jesus says about belief. Turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. We're going to look at Jesus' words, his own very words, and kind of begin to shape our understanding of what is meant by a believer. How does God's word describe a believer? Look at John chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now keep going. Look at the end of that chapter. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus in this chapter is talking to Nicodemus. Right, This guy who kind of has some background in, in the Bible, Old Testament writings, uh, but he's confused about what Jesus is talking about. Earlier in chapter 3, Jesus is talking about how he must be born again, and he says, well, I, how can I get back in my mother's womb? I can't be born again. And so Jesus is clarifying what he means, and he's talking about belief. Four different times in this conversation, he talks to Nicodemus about this. He says that one must believe in him in order to have eternal life, in order that the wrath of God is lifted from him. That only happens, Jesus says, through belief. So belief in Jesus is the key. 
but not just belief that Jesus existed or that he performed miracles or that he was a good teacher. Those things can be believed by all kinds of unbelieving, unchristian people. What we're talking about is real belief that saves a person because they believe Jesus is who he said he is. He's God in the flesh. The kind of belief we're talking about is belief that Jesus came what he did to do. He came and did what he did to do. He came and did what he said he would do. I don't know what I just said, but you get the point. He said he was going to die in the place of sinners, and he did it. This is belief that he conquered the grave, that he beat death and has really done everything necessary to make sinners right with God. That's the kind of belief that we're talking about. But this kind of belief, this saving true belief only comes about through faith. It only comes about through faith. In maybe the the greatest work on biblical God doctrine in the book of Romans, Paul talks about the righteousness of God and he says it's given to people through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3.22 says that. Romans 3.25, Paul also says that the sacrifice of Jesus is to be received by what? By faith. 3.26, Paul says that Jesus is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, that we have been justified by faith. See, belief only comes about through faith. But make no mistake about it. Paul isn't saying you just need to muster up enough faith and then you can believe. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, reminds us that faith is a gift of God even to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Faith is a gift, not something that we can muster up in ourselves. Because think about it this way. If you could just muster up enough belief, enough faith, we wouldn't give God the glory for our salvation. We would take it. Well, I just had enough faith and I believed. But if we understand that we have faith only because of a work of the Spirit in our lives then we really truly can and will give God all the glory for our salvation, which is what he wants. Now, not only this, not only the belief and the faith aspect of, of this, but I just want to point out that without exception in the New Testament, baptism is tied to repentance and faith in the person being baptized. Repentance and faith. Even John's baptism before and, and during Christ's uh, coming, even John's baptism itself was summarized in Mark, Luke, Acts several times as a baptism of repentance. In telling the early history and story of the church at its very beginning in the book of Acts, the writer there repeatedly ties baptism to repentance and faith. There's a couple of these texts in your notes. I'm just going to go through them quickly. Acts 2.38 Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Acts 2.41, those who had received his word were baptized. They'd already received the word of the Lord. In Acts 8.12 and 13, it says, When they believed Philip as he preached, and even Simon himself believed and then was baptized. 
Every time in the New Testament that we see somebody being baptized, it's tied to them repenting and them having faith. In fact, every case in the whole book of Acts, in every case, only people who had already believed were baptized. And that's important to understand and see. Only people that had already believed were baptized. You, I'm not going to go through every one of these. Um, hopefully you've got a, a list of notes, uh, but it's got, I don't know, five or ten different passages from the book of Acts. And every one of those is talking about people believing and then being baptized. Belief, then baptism. There's not a single instance in the New Testament where any person of any age was baptized before they believed. So I think all of this is shaping what our definition of what a believer is. We're saying believer's baptism is what we practice. So what's a believer? This is shaping it. And I think a good definition would be that a believer is someone who has believed Jesus, repented of their sins, and has faith in him alone for salvation. So when we speak about believer's baptism, that's what we mean when we talk about believer. So this is why Baptists believe that the church should only baptize believers, people that have already professed and understood faith in Christ. Does this include children? Sometimes, maybe. If we can you know, be reasonably certain that they have been saved, that they are believers, does this include teenagers? Maybe. Does this include adults? Maybe. Yeah. Does this include babies? In our understanding of what baptism is, no. We don't baptize babies. Our answer is no, because as far as we understand, as far as we can tell, infants are not able to repent and believe. And those are the things that are tied to baptism in the New Testament. So I just want to stop here because I think this will help clarify some things. I want to stop here and remind us about a month and a half ago, we finished up the book of Matthew. And you guys remember the last chapter of the book of Matthew at the very end is the Great Commission. And Jesus gives his followers the motivation and the guarantee to go do what he's called them to do. Um, my proposition to you in, when I preached about that was that the, the Great Commission is really primarily a call to disciple making. We have been called to make disciples, right? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of that, you can go. You can baptize. You can teach. You can make disciples. So the criteria, and you can look at this in Matthew 28, the criteria for a disciple is someone who can be taught and someone who can observe everything that Christ commanded. We're told to go teach and baptize. That's what it looks like to make a disciple. So again, this is why we believe that the church should only baptize believers. I've never heard of anyone referred to a baby as a disciple. Whether in a Christian family or an unbelieving family, I've just never heard anybody refer to a baby as a disciple. Maybe you would. Um, but I never have. So if Jesus' command is to baptize disciples of his, then I would say this would not include infants. So instead of asking, when should we baptize someone? Again, I think we need to ask, who should we baptize? And I believe that the church is commanded to baptize believers. Those who do not believe 
should not be baptized by the church. Uh, By the way, this is why baptism is called an ordinance in the Bible, because it has been ordered by Christ himself. Okay. Maybe you're still not convinced. Um, let's, Let's keep going. So the first question was, was when we changed it to who. I hope that we've seen some passages that kind of starting to convince us of that. Believers. Um, now let's move on to, well, how should we baptize? What, what's that going to look like? Why do we do it the way that we do it? On the very back page, we're not, we don't have time to go through this, so spend some time reading it. On the very back page is kind of a, um, a supplemental thing about detailed history. So if you care about the history of why we do it the way we do, there's some stuff there. It talks about interesting things. Uh, you can look up more information online. Uh, if you're interested, come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, founders.org to the roots of the Southern Baptist Convention of Baptist Faith and Practice. Founders.org is a great resource. You can find more of that information there, but that gives you the the historical background of why we do it the way that we do it. Um, But even more than that, we want to look at Scripture. And so we've already said that water, the water isn't anything special, right? could be any kind of water. If that's true, you maybe you're thinking, well, well, why does it matter how wet I get? Whether I sprinkle or immerse or whatever, does the mode of baptism really matter? I think it does, and I'm going to give you three reasons. These are adapted from a little book called Going Under by a guy named Jim Eliff, and I think it's wonderful, but these are adapted from his book. And there's three quick reasons why we immerse believers when we baptize. Number one, the original language. We can't escape it. The word for baptize in the New Testament is baptizo. And there's no dispute among scholars, theologians, the lexicons, translations, even people that, that adhere to other types of baptism believe and agree that this word means immerse. Fully under, dunk, dip. The word for sprinkling is a totally different Greek word. The word for pouring is a totally different Greek word. Baptizo is a different Greek word altogether. And so that's the first reason, the original language. The second reason why we immerse is the consistency of Scripture. This happened and is recorded this way regularly. We see that water was used in baptism. Acts 10, 47 and 48. Can anyone forbid that these should not be baptized? Not only water, but a lot of water was necessary. Look at John 3.23. should be in your notes too. It says they, they saw this because John was baptizing in this location because there was much water there. If sprinkling could have been John's mode of baptism, he could have just carried around a jug or a cup of water wherever he went and baptized people there. But they went there, that's the next point. People actually came to the water where the, the deep water was. Acts 8.38, as they went down the road, they came to some water. As Philip was preaching the gospel to the eunuch, they were talking. There was already a working of the Spirit going on, but it wasn't until they saw the water that baptism came in. You wouldn't need... Well, again, get ahead of myself. Um, the eunuch traveling across the desert... He was traveling across the desert, 
What, if you're traveling across the desert, what are you going to bring with you? Water. If he had water with him in his chariot, why did they need to wait until they got by more water for him to be baptized? Acts 8.38, people went down into the water. We see this, both Philip and the eunuch, so both the guy baptizing him and the guy being baptized, both went down into the water. You wouldn't need to go down into the water if you were going to be sprinkled. Then people came up out of the water. That's the natural next step. Philip and the eunuch both come out of the water. And in fact, this is recorded in Jesus' baptism. In Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus was baptized by John. We know that. And then it says, and coming up out of the water. It's when the dove descended. The voice from heaven sounded. Jesus came up out of the water. Immersion was Jesus' mode of baptism. People came to the water. They went down into the water. And they came up out of the water. So even, even if Jesus' example was all that we had, and I would think that we would agree that's enough. Jesus was immersed when he was baptized. The clear mode of baptism in Scripture, I believe, is immersion. That's the second thing. The first one was the original language. That one was consistency of Scripture. And thirdly, the clarity of its picture. Baptism is a much clearer picture than the one that we had of Tom Brady this morning. And it was a little pixelated, a little bit fuzzy, black and white. Baptism is clear in the picture that it's supposed to portray. We immerse people because we believe that it best pictures what God means to show through the ordinance of baptism. Baptists believe the main purpose of baptism is to symbolize spiritually, physically, thank you, to, to uh, symbolize physically what has already taken place in a believer spiritually. At conversion, not a baptism, at conversion, the believer was brought into union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and he was cleansed and washed spiritually. Both of those things happen before baptism. And you can see some of the scripture verses that I've got referenced there. Both of these spiritual aspects of conversion are best depicted by the physical act of immersion in water. We often call it an outward sign of an inward reality. This, this is why the water, our physical bodies, they don't have any power to change us spiritually. Only the power of God and salvation can do that. And that's why we believe that the Spirit imparts life before baptism. So we are careful and we need to continue to remain careful not to make baptism a work of salvation, a, prerequis a prerequisite for salvation. It's not. When we do this, I believe we distort the meaning of grace and truth from Ephesians chapter 2. I want to be clear, though. Even though we believe that baptism is not a work necessary for someone to be saved, I think it's going to be the joyful proclamation of everyone who is saved. Every believer is going to want to display this in joy. And I got to tell you, the, the Ridge, and I've talked with Noah, and I've talked with Braden and Alex, and there's some joy in these, in these lives. And it is, it is uh, encouraging. It is a, man, I, I'm pumped up when I get to talk with people about Jesus. And you can see it in their eyes when they're talking about it. 
Uh, and that's what we're going after. That's, that's the kind of joy that causes someone to, to do something very publicly that they may not be all that comfortable doing. So again, if all we have is the example of Jesus, and that would be enough, but if that's all we have, we believe that Christians, believers, should be baptized in the manner and for the reason that Jesus was baptized. So, but if, baptized, if baptism doesn't save you and is simply just a picture, what does it picture? This is the crux of the matter. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 8. Romans 6, 3 through 8. Do you, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, ultimately, this passage is teaching us about our freedom from the final and, and inevitable control of sin, but it also shows us a picture of our union with Christ and how it's pictured in baptism. We see the believers here are considered to be in union with Christ, together with Him, experiencing in His death and resurrection their own death and resurrection. Paul correlates those events. In Christ, we died to sin when He died, and were raised to life when he was raised. God sees us in him. Just let that sink in for a minute. God, believer, God sees Christ in you. He doesn't see the, the mountains of sin that are built up in our lives oftentimes. He sees Christ in us. Our union with Christ means that we have died to sin's dominion, and have then been raised to new, to new life towards God. And Paul ties all of this around to baptism, doesn't he? When Paul says we were baptized into his death, and we were buried with him through baptism, in, baptism into death, does he mean then that that all happens when a person is baptized with water? I don't think so. I think he's saying here that our being spiritually immersed into Christ's death and resurrection produces these kinds of results spiritually our death to sin and our life in christ it's our spiritual union with jesus that causes these benefits to come about it's a spiritual work that no person no water can accomplish but baptism beautifully pictures what this is supposed to be for others to see so kids this is where i summarize what we talked about Baptism is going down into the water, and in doing that, we act out our death and our burial. Baptism is also coming up out of the water, and by doing that, we act out our being raised to a new life in Christ. Sprinkling 
or pouring, they do not communicate this picture the way that immersion does. As a church, we baptize true believers after conversion, not before. And as a church, we immerse believers because it effectively and beautifully pictures the death of our old self and the new life that we have in Christ. Here's how this connects us together. If, if you were with us last week at Ridge's baptism, um, you participated in something, whether you realized it or not. Because baptism is not just for the person being baptized, is it? If it was, Jesus could have called John to go baptize him in a separate place all by himself without anybody else there. But that's not what he did. He got baptized in front of everyone. Baptism is not just for the person being baptized. Brothers and sisters, it's for you. It's for the church. Because of what baptism pictures, baptism preaches the gospel without using any words. When we view it as dying to our old self and being raised to new life in Christ, that's the gospel lived out without saying anything. And it's beautiful. The one being baptized then is confirmed of the work of the Spirit in their life. And brothers and sisters, the church is built up by that person's unashamed proclamation. As a church, we celebrate the display of that person's obedience and God's saving grace in their life. Now, I, I talked with Noah recently. I talked with Ridge, and I, I use this example, and I'll, I'll use it with you guys because it's easy for me to understand. Imagine uh, if I came to your house and I put a giant sign in front of your house and I, and I wrote on there and I said, um, I said, Jason lives here. If I, if I went in front of their house and I put a big sign, I said, Jason lives here. Maybe you've never been to their house before. Maybe you don't know who lives there, but you drive by the house and you see this sign. What do you know about the house? You know that J- some guy named Jason lives there, Right? This is baptism. Baptism is Noah next week putting a sign in the ground saying, Jesus lives here. That's what it is. And even if you don't know him, or even if you're not familiar with him as a person, that's something that you know about him. Jesus lives in Noah. That's what baptism is it's an individual saved by grace through faith openly and joyfully staking a sign in front of their lives for everybody to see so let me just say this as as we close um we agreed at the beginning today hopefully you agreed with me in spirit at least uh, that we were going to build the foundation for everything we understood about baptism on the Word of God, right? Not even on church history, which is interesting and helpful, but that's not what we build practices of church from. We build it off of the Word of God. So we've agreed to do that together. I would just challenge you in this way. If, if God has shown you something this morning that you didn't know or that you feel like needs to happen differently in your life, don't just write it off. Don't just ignore it. Pursue God. Talk to the Lord. 
see if a change needs to happen in your life. Don't let, don't let pride or anyone or anything else keep you from obeying the Lord. That'd be my encouragement to you. And, and last encouragement would be when we gather for a baptismal service, do everything you can to be there. I realize that our schedules are busy and you're not at church every week, but if you know that somebody's being baptized, do everything in your power as a family to be there because it means so much to have the church united in supporting these folks. It's an ordinance of Jesus and we ought to take it seriously. And I pray as a church, we understand better this morning now who we should baptize, that we should baptize people that have already pronounced faith in Christ, people that are believers. That's why we call it believer's baptism. And also the mode of why we baptize, we feel is important because of what it pictures. It pictures beautifully the death of our old self and the life that we now live to Christ. So if you've not, if you've not experienced that spiritually in your own heart, don't wait. Now's the time. We're going to sing one final song together before we go. During that song, talk with the Lord. If he's moving in you to make a change, to make a decision, to do something, don't wait. Do it. You can come talk to me. I'll be standing up here at the front. You can talk to someone in your row. But don't wait. Let's pray. Lord, you are good to us in and giving us direction. We, we can argue about a lot of things, Lord. Um, but as believers, I pray that we unite and stand boldly and firmly on the inspired word of God that we, we believe has no error, that we believe is not just a, a, a nice, fun book to know. But Lord, it is it's mandatory for life and godliness. And so, God, I pray for Christians in the room. I pray that you would impress upon them the need to, to, to be baptized, certainly, Lord, um, but also to find joy in that baptism, to be excited to proclaim, to stake that sign in front of their lives that says Jesus lives here, and then I'm not ashamed about it. And so, Lord, I pray that... Uh, you would move in, in this church. We thank you for the rich history that has been passed down to us. And we want to continue to build on your word in how we do church and how we do this and how we worship. God, you designed this. This is not our idea. We want to more and more closely resemble your plan for worship, your plan for the church. And so, Lord, if, if this is new to our hearing and understanding, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts in this topic and for this. We thank you for this picture that we get to witness. It's not an every Sunday kind of a thing, Lord, but when we see it, God, you're so good and we see your goodness in baptism. And so I pray, Lord, that we would celebrate and rejoice in faith that is a gift, in repentance that is a gift, and Lord, in believers who trust in you and go through the waters of baptism to display unashamedly the change in their life that's come about through faith in Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.